Now, I've shared before how I served as an associate pastor for a season, and one of my jobs was visiting people, people who hadn't been to church in some time. And on one of those visits, I visited a lady who hadn't been to church in over a decade. Now, to be fair, there, stories like this are always complicated. Uh, she had been a part of the church when they had had a couple of pastors who had been unfaithful to their wives. And so there was good reason for her to think that she wasn't in a good place. But she didn't decide that she needed to find another church that was healthy to commit to. And so she had just kind of quit going. Now, I tried as I visited her, gently but clearly to to speak the word of God to her and uh, present her with Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, where it's very clear that uh, Christians ought to meet together. They should not refrain from doing that. It's part of what it means to be a healthy believer. And we spent some time there, but she assured me as a young pastor that, oh, I'm just fine spiritually, pastor. Don't, don't worry about me. And so I asked her, well, okay, I think I've done as much as I can here. Just ask the Lord to, to do more. I said, well, how can I pray for you? And she said, well, you know, I have a son. He was baptized when he was 10 but he hasn't been back to the church since. He's lived a life of addiction. He hasn't been a great son. He's not treated others well. Um, he, he could die at any moment. He's involved in all kinds of sin. But, as I'm sitting here thinking like, that's enough to pray for, she says, once saved, always saved, you know. And it was in that moment, I thought, I, I don't think that phrase means what she thinks it means. Or maybe I thought it meant something different than what it actually means. It seems that she had taken this, this idea, once saved, always saved, to justify not going to church, even though the Word of God clearly said that she needs to be a, a faithful member of a local church. It, it seemed that it would justify this, this thought that her son could be uh, baptized at some point in history, and from that point forward, never showing obedience towards Christ. And, and, and you know, once saved, always saved. There was a, a subtle kind of presumption of God's grace. A kind of assuming that God's grace meant that it doesn't matter if we sin. Now, now let me be clear. There's a beauty to God's grace that covers our sins, but the Bible never seems to present this idea of the richness and the beauty of God's grace as a kind of justification on the front end of choosing to sin. But that seems to be the way that They looked at it. She presumed on God's grace to justify sin. Well, we're back in Romans in chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. And you'll remember, we we just got out of chapter 5 where Paul has been describing how Christians have relocated spiritually. They were once in the zip code of Adam, where they were under the power of sin and death. But they relocated by faith to Christ They have now property in Christ where they are under the power of righteousness and eternal life. This is the place where grace reigns. They are no longer under the wrath and condemnation of God. It is a good, hopeful, future-promising place. Well, you've noticed that as we've gone through Romans, when it comes to doctrine, nuance is important. And Paul has been demonstrating this masterfully. As soon as he says one thing, he's been preaching the gospel at this point for 20 
five years. And he can already anticipate the question that is going to naturally follow from what he has just said. Now, this morning, I believe that he is picking up on that declaration that he made in Romans 5, 20 to 21. You'll remember there, he said, where sin increased, God's grace super increased. I mean, what a great promise for the believer. But there is a way in which you can take that beautiful, glorious promise, that new reality that is ours in Christ, and we can turn it and spin it in such a way that it is used to justify something that is not also true. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he, this morning in chapter 6, asked this question, what shall we say then? What shall we say then to this, this reality that where sin increased, God's grace super increased? It seems that some listened to that and they wrongly interpreted Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone as a kind of justification to sin. Well, some likely charged with Paul probably looked at him, heard his teaching, and said, Paul sounds like what we call an antinomian, which is just a, a big word. It's a combination of two Greek words for uh, anti and namos, which means uh, against the law or not holding to the law. It describes a, a variety of views that people hold, where they deny that Christians ought to obey God's word. Or maybe they say that you don't have to obey God's word because we are now under a season of God's grace. And so grace, for some, carries this understanding that it doesn't matter if we obey Jesus. It's okay if we sin. So if we are saved by grace alone, here's the question. Does it, does it matter how we live as we await the return of Jesus? I'm not asking you for your own perspective in your hearts. That's something I hope you're dealing with through this sermon. But what I want to ask you is, what does Paul have to say about it this morning in Romans chapter 6? And here's our big idea. Our big idea is this. God's grace in Christ frees us from the domination or the dominant power of sin. God's grace in Christ frees us from the dominant power of sin. Now, first, our first point is this. It's a question. Should Christians continue in sin that grace may abound? Should they? Now, Paul's speaking to Christians in verse 1. He is focused on those who are believers who have been justified by faith alone. And he asks them in verse 1 two questions. What should we say then? So, pulling from what we just said in chapter 5. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, does the good news of God's grace, does it justify loose living? It could be that some did the math of, you know, sin increasing and grace abounding and said, well, that, that sounds like we can kind of do God a solid if we sin more because then he'll give us more grace and then he gets more glory for the more grace and they kind of did the math. But also, did you catch that Paul asks if we should continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, this word for continue is, it's a word that, that means that you continue in an activity or state. Something that was prior is, is continuing on without change. I think the idea here is that prior to becoming a Christian, we were all under the power of sin and death, and we sinned in Adam. But Paul's asking, 
if we are now in Christ and under the reign of Christ, should we keep on sinning like we did when we were under Adam? In other words, nothing about us changes except for God's view of us as righteous, even though our actions aren't changing at all and they're still unrighteous. Not only that, Paul seems to be asking if we should justify sin with God's boundless grace in Christ. And what is the Christian's relationship to sin in Christ? Has our relationship changed? Has your relationship with sin changed since you put your faith in Christ, since that moment that you were changed? Has your life changed? Should we expect that? Should we continue to sin so that we maximize grace? Or is there another way that we should be relating to sin now that we are in Christ? Another way to put this is, should we sin presuming on God's grace? Now the Bible, if you go and you read through it, you'll find all kinds of different ways to look at sin and to understand it. And one way to to look at sin, are, are there really two kinds of sins in the Old Testament? The Old Testament speaks of sins of ignorance and sins of presumption. And they're not treated the same. Now, a sin of ignorance speaks of sinning without conscious awareness of the sin. We read about this in Leviticus 5.17. There we find in Leviticus 5.17, if anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. And there's sacrifices for this. And then in Hebrews 9, 7, it mentions this, the same kind of sin, a sin of ignorance. It says, likewise, the high priest would enter the most holy place once a year for his own sins and the people's sins committed in ignorance. I don't know about you, but that's kind of overwhelming to think about. I personally have enough to deal with just dealing with the sins that I know about, much less the sins that I don't know about. Praise God for Jesus, right? Now here, Paul at least is asking if we should commit presumptive sins. Those flagrant disobedience and deliberate disobediences against God. Now we we find this as well in the Old Testament. Uh, David, there's a a scene where he's praying in Psalm 1913. And right after he has prayed for his sins of ignorance or those hidden faults that aren't seen, he, he goes into praying for the presumptive sins. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then in Numbers 15, he, they call these high-handed sins by one who reviles the Lord. And that person, they say, shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord. You've got the sins of ignorance. You've got a sacrifice that you need to make to have atonement. Uh, On the other hand, you have these presumptuous sins and that person is cut off from amongst the people. They are more serious sins. The Old Testament says presumptuous sins are the most egregious and dangerous sins. In fact, Puritan Thomas Manton writes on these in his works. And he gives examples of, of some of these sins. I'm not saying this is the totality or they should be limited this way, but he he speaks of whoring and gluttony and drunkenness. 
And he says, you know, some sins, even our natural consciences should tell us, even outside of Christ, that this is wrong and not the way to live. And he goes on to say this, presumptuous sins are the bold darlings and proud adventurings of the heart upon things or ways known to be unlawful against the express threatenings either upon a false confidence or upon contemptuous slighting or desperate willfulness. It is a kind of shaking a hand in the face of God. Now here's the question. Does the reign of grace enjoyed by us who are in Jesus Christ mean that we are to continue on in sinning while presuming on God's grace? Well, notice second Paul's short answer. No way. Okay, just no, no way. Should we sin that, that grace may abound all the more? I just want to make sure you all hear this right. No. Okay? See, Paul's a great communicator. And I love the way that he, he's going to go into an extended conversation about how to respond and interact with sin. But he begins with like, let me just be clear up front. I'm going to answer briefly, clearly, firmly. I want to leave no doubt where I stand. So shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? His emphatic response, by no means. Now, just to confirm that this is right, I looked it up in a number of translations. You will also find that some translations say here, God forbid, absolutely not. May it never be, and of course not. And of course, there was one translation I looked up and it said, no way, hose way. Now, you'll have to find that one. I, I can't tell you exactly which one I forget, but the point is, no. And the brevity and force of Paul's response means that God's grace must not justify sin. See, Paul's going on to unpack for us in verses 2 to 14 the reality of our new relationship towards sin. And that he doesn't want us to get lost in the weeds. There is no way. Please hear me, Christian. There is no way that you should allow God's grace in Christ to you to embolden you to sin presuming upon God and expecting future mercy for sin willingly committed. That is not the teaching of the grace of God. That is not biblical grace. That is a a Gnostic grace or something, but it's not grace of the Bible. See, the question he asked in verse 2 intends to explain why. And here's the question. He asked another question to kind of answer his question. He says this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, when you read that, you might be asking, in, in what way have Christians died to sin? Now, clearly, this doesn't mean that Christians are not tempted by sin or that Christians are incapable of sin. Uh, if you read the rest of Paul, that's very clear. If you read the rest of the New Testament, that's very clear. If you just go to lunch, that'll be very clear. But here, Paul is proclaiming the good news. The good news that Christians have already died with respect to sin. Now, this is powerfully declaring a decisive shift in a Christian's relationship to sin. It is as dramatic as moving from life to death. 
That is our new relationship with sin. It is a dramatic change. Christians, we are no longer under the, the tyranny of sin. See, Christian, you were once an Adam, once under the, the power of sin and death. But when you put your faith in Christ, you really did step into a new reality. I think this is something that Satan, demons, a world that is in opposition to God wants to lie to us about and wants to obscure this reality to us. We are living in a new reality as Christians. It is a reality that we need to be reminded of day by day and moment by moment. We need to be constantly reminded of who God says we are in Christ. When we stepped into Christ by faith, we stepped into a new reality characterized by righteousness and eternal life. Eternal life is not just a future promise. It is at least that, but it is also speaking of a reality that is ours in the here and now. Christian, you were once in Adam, but now you are in Christ. Paul just said in Romans 5 that every person is born in Adam, born under the reign of the power of sin and death. That is our default zip code as humans. But those in Christ enjoy another spiritual zip code, the, the reign of grace characterized by the righteousness and eternal life of us in Jesus. So those who have been made right with God through this righteous king who came and died for us, we will, if we are in Christ, hear me closely, we will take God's side against sin rather than sin's side against God. That is a, a new posture, a new change in the way that we interact with sin. So hear me, a, a good sign that you've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is that you have, in discernible ways, particular ways, taken God's side against sin in your life. Have you done that? Can you point them out? Can you, can you actually say, there is a distinct difference here? Do you have people in your life, friends, family members, pastors, other church members, who can say, I see a change in your life that tells me that the Spirit of God is present. You have not won fully yet in the sense that you are perfect. That's not happening until Jesus gets back. But something's different. See, those in Adam, they are under the power of sin. They take sin's side against God. And we need to be careful as Christians that we don't slip back into that, taking sin's side against God. We don't kill sin like we should sometimes. Is that right? Do we even sometimes protect sin and coddle it? Sometimes I think that we can become much like we were in Adam. You know, if you're in Adam, you're, you're kind of like a crow. Do you know what a crow is? It's a bird, very famous for being territorial. You get close to its nest, it will take a dive against you. It's going for flesh. But the unique thing about the crow is it doesn't stop. It continues to dive and dive and dive until you just let its nest alone. And I think sometimes humans, people, can act like crows protecting our precious sins in our nest. You know, crows are extremely territorial with their nest. We can be extremely territorial with our sins. We can protect them with ferocity. Have you ever gotten angry because someone began to step into your life because they saw a pattern of sin and they said, or you said, it is none of your business. Now, sometimes people can do it in the wrong way. I mean, let's just be fair. 
but is there any way to come to you and approach you about sin in your life that you would show gratefulness because you have truly taken God's side against sin and you want to put it to death, whether it be in you or someone else? We justify our sins with loopholes in the law. You know, I wasn't thinking right, I just got off COVID. I mean, there are some things that can be explained by that, right? We deny that we have sinned. Say, I didn't sin. We hide our sins from others. We don't want others to see what's, what's dark in us. And we're protecting it. We don't know that, but, but hiding it is protecting it. And even as we protect it, we, we coddle our sins like crows protecting their young, those darling eggs like Thomas Manton speaks of. Those in Christ, hear me, under the power of the righteousness of Christ, who have eternal life, we take God's side against sin. And maybe this is something you just need to be reminded of this morning. You needed somebody to just sort of splash cold water on your face, the cold water of the gospel to remind you that I should be posturing my, side, my, my life more against sin than I was. We look to kill sin like we look to kill scorpions in our beds, right? It's not a, a baby in a nest. It is a scorpion in our bed that wants to sting us. We put sin to death not by hiding it, but by revealing it through confession. We ask others to help us see ourselves and to hold us accountable to one another in discipleship. We, we quit social media sometimes or our smartphones, things that are not bad in of themselves, but are bad for us and leading us to sin. We're, we're willing to put it to death, even if it means there's some good things that we have to stop doing. It might be drinking alcohol, not a sin according to the scriptures, but maybe for me, it's something that I, I love too much. We hate sin and so we put it to death. Whatever it takes not to give sin a foothold in our lives, that's, that's the distance that we're willing to go. We don't approach sin casually, we're not using God's grace as justification for sin, presuming on his forgiveness. In his book, Knowing Sin, Mark Jones says this. He says, presumptuous sins are aggravated by the fact that the person that we dishonor is the one we depend on to rescue us from the dishonor we willingly commit. I mean, what, what a thing it is that we are doing when we sin, presuming on God's grace. We are presuming on grace, hoping that the God that we sin against will also be the God that saves us. Praise be God that he does that. But he doesn't do it as a license to sin against him. If we've died to sin, we can't live under God's, uh, uh, we can't live under sin's reign of terror anymore. We must take God's side against sin. But what does Paul mean that we've died to sin? What is, what is he saying in this? Well, he's saying we have died with respect to it. But notice third in verses three to five that he starts to talk about baptism. And this is, this is our third point, this. Believer's baptism pictures our union with Christ's death and resurrection. Believer's baptism pictures our union with Christ's death and resurrection. We see that in verses three to five. See, Paul says that a believer's baptism, it, it pictures the union between the believer, the person who's been justified by faith alone and Christ alone, and Christ's burial and resurrection. Now here's how he says it. Look with me again in chapter six, verses three to five. He says this. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, Trinity Bible Church, our church, teaches and practices believers' baptism. But to be fair, I don't see baptism actually as the main point of this text. It's an important text to understand baptism. It assumes baptism, but it is pointing more deeply to union with Christ. You can see that union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection is at the forefront of Paul's mind here. And this imagery, it it makes sense to Paul because it would not make sense to have a believer in the first century who had not been immersed or dunked in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a public declaration of one's union with Christ and his people. It was the, the very thing that Matthew, in Matthew 28, Jesus, who's been raised from the dead, gives his disciples as he's preparing to leave. I want you to do this, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. But didn't you just teach us to baptize? So why did you need to say baptize? I think the reason that there he says baptize is because he's saying this is the first and fundamental move that declares that you have become a follower of Jesus Christ. And so Paul would have understood that believers were those who had been baptized. When Paul says in verse 3, do you know? He's tipping his hat that he assumes the Romans know what he's about to explain about baptism and being united with Christ. So if you're tracing the flow of Romans... Paul understands that those who have been justified by faith in Christ, that is, believers in Christ, have also been baptized or dunked in water. This is a basic description of a Christian as a baptized believer. Now, I know that some have taken Paul's mention of baptism here to speak of a kind of metaphorical baptism. Others have seen it as a a type of spiritual baptism. But our resurrected Christ commended baptism in Matthew 28. And I think it's difficult to imagine that Christians would not have the actual meaning of the word in mind as the first act of of faithful believers. So what does it mean to be baptized into Christ Jesus? Tom Schreiner explains it this way in his commentary. He says, being baptized into Christ is synonymous with being baptized into the name of of Jesus Christ. So those who are baptized into Christ are united with him. They belong to him. And we are with Christ as our representative head, united to him as seen in baptism. And because we are so united to Christ by faith, what we find is, is that we were submerged into his death and immersed together with him. Verse 10, if you were to look down in the text, it'll show you that Christ's own death was a death to sin, and his resurrection meant living to God. From this, I think verse 4 infers that if united with Christ, if we are united with Christ in his death through baptism, It then follows that we were buried together with him through baptism 
and to death. But notice the purpose of being buried with Christ by baptism into death. Do you say you see that little in order that? That's telling us the purpose of this. It says it is in order that or for the purpose of just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might be able to walk in newness of life. This was so that we might have new life. Now a couple of things that we need to note. First, Jesus we are told was raised by the glory of the Father. That means that it was the power of God, His glory, that that raised Jesus from the dead at the resurrection. Now, that could speak of the Holy Spirit. Some people have shown the connection between the Holy Spirit and this power. We'll talk about that later. It is the Holy Spirit that gives life. And he might be saying that same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, helping us to walk in newness of life. And I think that's what he's saying. That, that same power that comes from God to, to raise Christ from the dead, it is that power that is in work in you to bring about the newness of life that you've been called to. See, we no longer walk in sin and death, but in righteousness and life. That's verse 4. We walk in newness of life because Christ was raised from the dead. And then verse 5 says this. Look there with me again. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, some take verse 5 to speak of the future resurrection of believers when Jesus returns. And there are other scriptures that clearly affirm that Jesus is coming back and that he's going to finish what he has begun in us. But I take Paul here to speak of how the power of death and the future last day, as we'll say, eschatological resurrection that is coming for us has actually penetrated our present lives. There is a a future that we look forward to, that we are already experiencing in the here and now, in part, not fully. So if you've been baptized, you, you should experience the power of Christ's death and resurrection already, just not fully, as you are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. In other words, what it means to be a Christian is not that you get baptized, you take his name upon you, and then you go about your business just hoping that he gets back someday. No, it changes everything. Now, not all agree on this point when it comes to baptism, but I take the death, burial, and resurrection here to be symbolized in the immersion, submersion, and immersion that we see in baptism. See, Paul assumes that all of those justified by faith and only those justified by faith have been, have been baptized. We don't believe that this baptism sacramentally regenerates the believer, but that it is an actual outward visible sign of a hidden spiritual reality. It's here that we see that a person has put their faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as their hope both in life and death. Now, Paul's point is that believers are baptized into the name of Christ as a public declaration that they have been spiritually united by faith to Christ. We have a real union with him. It has changed everything about the reality that we are living in. We are living under the reign of grace where righteousness and eternal life reign in and through us. And the power of sin and death has been definitively broken. So how can those who have experienced that return to their past life, return to bondage of sin, dabble in sin, 
coddle sin. Play around the lines and, and think about maybe I should take a step in and just see if it's better than grace. You've been there. It, it leads to sorrow and death. It's not good for you. Paul says, how, how could you return to something like that? Why would you want to even consider that sinning all the more would mean that grace abounds? You're dead to that life. See, God's grace in Christ really does free us from the dominant power of sin. It really does. Doesn't mean that we're gonna be perfect in this life. I mean, I'm on that journey, it's not happening. I, I pray that it happens. I know it'll happen one day when Jesus gets back. But I have taken, and we have taken collectively in Christ, a stance against sin, not for sin. So how do we apply this? Well, I think on one surface level, I could say pretty quickly that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized as a believer, then I would encourage you to be baptized. I think that's faithfulness to God's word. The resurrection, the resurrection, when Jesus was raised from the dead, you'll remember I've said this a couple of times in Matthew 28, it was his initial public declaration that if you put your faith in Jesus, you need to make disciples, go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those who have been baptized into Christ, they have a new status. Uh, they are no longer in Adam, they are in him. You are no longer in Adam, but in Christ and united to Christ and his people. Now, just to be clear, baptism does not save you, right? Like you, you can be baptized with water and not be a Christian. But if you love Christ, then you ought to want to be baptized because Jesus said so. And can I add one more clarification? Paul also seems to say that if you are baptized, that it marks a new way of life characterized by an inbreaking of eternal life into the present that you are experiencing. And it will be marked by righteousness and holiness. If you love other Christians in a local church, then it is a good sign that you have met the risen king. If you are seeking to kill sin in your life, a great sign that you have followed Christ, that you've truly been united with him. That is, friends, hear me, basic Christianity. That is not like, you know, Rambo-style Christianity. That is basic Christianity. You're new. You've changed. Second, don't presume on God's grace to justify sin. Don't presume on God's grace to justify sin. Now, how do, how do we do that? How might we do that? Well, most of us would probably not publicly come out and say that we sin all the more that grace may abound. If you do, please talk to me afterwards. I'd love to have that conversation. But in your heart, do you actually look to God's grace purchased by the blood of his eternal son who took on flesh and died at the cross for you, for your sins? That grace, do you use that to justify your sin, to temper the, the kind of the kind of aggression that you take against sin that's in your life? Do you drink alcohol to get close to the line as possible because you have freedom in Christ? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I know we're not supposed to get drunk, but like, I just, it's really close. I'm just gonna keep going. I mean, Jesus will forgive me, right? Do you lose your temper at your wife or your kids or maybe harbor a root of bitterness against your husband without seeking help because you believe that grace has covered you? You don't sense, I need to get help, I need to get counseling, I need to get shepherding. This isn't the kind of sin that needs to remain in my life. This does not reflect the power of the gospel. This is not who I am in Christ. 
Maybe you don't make coming to church a priority in your life. It's kind of preaching to the choir, right? Even though Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, commands us to gather more and more as we await the return of Jesus. Perhaps you've really, you haven't really sought reconciliation with a brother or sister here at Trinity. And you take communion week after week, and your bitterness grows, and you get further and further from forgiveness, and you need to seek forgiveness that is only to be had in Christ. With that person, make the steps that you need to take. Now, you don't say it outside in these moments, but in our hearts, we actually are in a sense, a very subtle sense, using God's grace to justify continuing in sin, coddling sin, maybe warming ourselves by the fire, not committing to it, but, but also not running from it. Dear friend, let me just encourage you this morning that God's grace is much greater than what you are believing. Again, Puritan Thomas Manton writes of the sin of presumption, and he calls it an implicit blasphemy, saying it's as if God were an ignorant God when we presumptuously sin and did not know the sinner's wickedness, or a careless God that would not take notice of it, or an impotent God that would not punish his rebellion, or an unjust God that would not. Don't miss this. God makes us violent towards our own sins. As John Owens said, be killing sin, or or it will be killing you. Third application. Justification and sanctification are happily married. Now, this is an illustration. It's not in the Bible, so just take it for what it's worth. But what I mean by this is an illustration, justification and sanctification, they are distinct as realities. But they always come together, and they love one another, and you don't find one without the other. In other words, justification is this doctrine that says that we have been made right with God. And if we put our faith in Christ, then we've been made right with him. But we are told that if we have been justified, then God is also at work in us, sanctifying us. He has consecrated us. He has set us apart as his people. And he is also at work in us, making us holier and holier through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we look more like our holy God. If you have been justified and made right with God, more and more, you will look like your righteous God. You will look more like Christ. You don't find one without the other. Now, let me just be clear. I believe that there was one thief on the cross that all he did was put his faith in Jesus, and he was with Jesus that same day in paradise based on faith alone. I believe in deathbed conversions. I believe I've seen those. I believe that those people are with Christ. I'm not saying that there aren't those moments where you put your faith in Jesus and then you're with him. But I'm saying that if you had been given a little bit more time and and you had been given a little bit more opportunity to live, and if you truly had the power of the resurrection at work in you, it'd be working on you. It'd be changing you. You'd be doing things different. You wouldn't look the same as when you began. You'd actually look new. You wouldn't look old. You look more like Christ and less like Adam day by day. I think that's the the picture that we get in the scriptures of the nature of what it means to be made right with God. That's why Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It comes with sanctification and fruit and all these things. Let me ask you this morning, 
We don't do this all the time, but is there sin in your life? Can you name it and claim it? Can you write it down? I'd encourage you, if you've you got a pen and paper right now, and somebody were to say, write your, like, what is it you're struggling with? Is there something you would have to write down? Now, it could be that God is just amazingly at work in your life. Praise God. Or it could be that we haven't taken a spiritual inventory of our own lives and where we stand with God. We haven't really thought deeply about, am I really living for righteousness' sake? Am I really obeying God? Am I really trusting that if I am in Christ, that Christ is doing something in me, and I can trust that he can sanctify me and make me holy and make me different than I was. I'd like you just to write that down if you get a chance this morning or maybe later this afternoon. And when you do, let me ask you this, how are you going to go about fighting it? Is is it gonna be something that just by default gets better because you've named it? No, I think it takes effort, grace-driven effort. So here's the point. I think that if you really have grace, you're going to fight sin. Grace doesn't enable sin. Grace turns against the sin in our lives. It empowers us, strengthens us to live the way that Christ created us to live. So how are you going to do that? Well, let me encourage you to do this. Fill yourself with the Word of God. Great way to know how to obey God. Great way to detect sin. Study the Word. Notice where you don't match up and see where there needs to be change. And pray about that. Go to God. Ask for His help by the power of his spirit to change and transform you. Spend more time with God's people. You have brothers and sisters in Christ here at Trinity Bible Church. It is a blessing. It will help you in your pursuit of holiness. It will challenge you in some ways. It will challenge your patience. It is easier to be patient if you stay at home alone and watch reruns of TV shows or Netflix. But is that really patience? Is it selfishness that we're actually indulging in calling it patience? You know, being around people, it, it builds your, your sense of patience. That fruit of the Spirit grows in community with God's people. Spend more time with God's people. Maybe you need to quit some things that you are free to do in Christ, but you know that are not leading towards righteousness. Maybe it's your smartphone. Maybe it's a presence on social media. I had a, a brother the other day tell me that like, he just got off social media because it was not leading to righteousness. It was leading to sin. It's not a sinful thing in and of itself, but for him it was. And maybe there's something like that in your life where you need to be aggressive against sin. And it's a church, Trinity Bible Church. I pray that we are hard on our own sins and gracious towards the weakness and sins of others. Humble, gentle, helpful as people are seeking to fight for holiness. See, graciousness, it doesn't mean that we ignore sin. Graciousness means that we are humbly loving sinners and seeking to come alongside them in their fight against sin. And we should expect that people love us enough to help us by speaking into our lives. Do you have people like that in your lives that you really trust to speak into it about growing in holiness? I think this should be happening as we are growing in our relationships and our community groups and our one-to-one discipleship. We, we aren't just meeting to talk about the scriptures, we're doing that, but we're actually considering our own souls and we're inviting others into our lives. We don't just believe new life is possible. We believe new life is promised. And if you're a non-Christian this morning, let me just encourage you with this. This grace that brings new life today and forever, it can be yours in Jesus Christ. Come to Christ today. Put your faith in him. Know that he died for you. He was raised for you so that you might have newness of life right now and forevermore when Jesus Christ returns to make all things right. If you haven't done that, talk to me. Talk to another Christian. Don't leave without putting your faith in Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you for the new reality that you have brought near to us in Christ. Father, I am sure that many, all of us, we know that we are all together in this fight against sin. But Father, we know that we have the victory in Christ, that we have the same power with which you raised your son at work in us. And so Father, we ask that you would help us to take your side against sin. Help us not to dabble in it, to coddle it, to protect it, to hide it, but to kill it to the glory of your name. Father, we ask these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who died to sin and we died with him. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen.